from deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The athletic calendar is already much busier than it was just a few weeks ago, as the new Exact Tech Arena welcomed in another tenant with the home debut of gymnastics helping the Gators light up the dome last weekend. On today's show, we'll cover an array of stories throughout the Gator Nation, from gymnastics to the Gators competing on Championship Sunday in the NFL with FloridaGators.com senior writer Scott Carter. But before we get to that, with men's basketball inside the top 20 and climbing, we wanted to take a deep dive into the inner workings of Mike White's second-year staff. The key to any successful squad is strong assistant coaches that control elements as critical as scouting and recruiting. So we sat down with Mike White's top lieutenant, Dusty May, and began by asking him how the buzz around the program is affecting the team. I think everyone right now is excited and it's unique because there have been so many different players step up for us that um, everyone is excited for their teammates. You see every single game, maybe one of our star players are on the bench at a pivotal time and, and the, the subs are doing a great job and, and seeing how excited they are for their teammates. And then obviously I think the fans are appreciating that, that the teamwork. And I think that's really helped with selling out the arena and, and, and people enjoying watching us play because there is passion uh, for each other, and it's not just one guy or not just two guys carrying the load and everyone kind of supporting them. Where each night we have no idea who's going to step up for us, but deep down we believe that we're going to find a way and, and that might be a different player every night step up to, to lead us to victory. When you've got the new arena and you have that element, what kind of juice does that give you? And what impact has that even had on the recruiting side, being able to show that off to people? Unfortunately, we've had so many Saturday games that recruits have played a lot of Saturday games either. So I think we'll be able to take advantage of it later on in the year. But it's just a it feels like a basketball arena. The ones that have been here have felt like, wow, this is this place was built for basketball games. This place was is not a multi-purpose facility. There's great energy, there's great enthusiasm, the video board, everything just adds a new dimension as far as game day atmosphere. And then I think our guys, at first it might have been a little bit of a distraction because it's it's really nice and it's new. Now I think they're starting to settle into it and, and, and we're excited to see you know how, how we keep doing at home. When people talk about the impact that facilities have on recruiting, can you just talk about as someone who's in that business and does that all the time, how do you present something like that? How important of a piece is that when you're making a case to someone who comes on campus? It's very important to recruits, and, and it just shows an investment to the sport and investment to athletics as a whole. But for us, I think the older we get, the further we get removed from stuff. And I think this next generation, these younger kids, they like, we just call it stuff. They like stuff. They like new things. They like neat things. So it's a little bit harder for us to relate to as we get older, and we're still a young staff. But I think the younger kids coming up, when they come on campus and they see this building and this shiny new thing and this investment, and more importantly, the, the fans and the crowd and the student section, mm-hmm. that's really what gets recruits excited to play at Florida, That more so than, than the building. But the building is a new dimension because it gives so much energy. It also helps build energy around the team when you're playing well. So when you look at where you guys are at, at this stage of the season, what differences do you see between this year and last year? Last year, everyone was just so new to each other. You didn't really know what was going to happen next. Everything was so unpredictable. And there was still, there wasn't a high level of trust because there wasn't a long-term relationship. Where now, 
we came in and it was work, work, work. And now this year after the season, it was kind of like, all right, let's take a deep breath. Let's get to know each other. Let's help figure out what makes each guy tick, try to hit those buttons. And then I think more than anything, just the guys buying into the team. They're just as happy for their teammates as they are for themselves. And and we don't feel like we've peaked or, or played near as well as we can. And that's another exciting thing that we know if we keep working and, and stay on course that we could do special things with this team. If we can take things back for you a little bit now going into a little bit of a this is your life, Dusty May. Can you talk about where you grew up and uh, what your parents did? I grew up in, in small town, southern Indiana, just outside of Bloomington, and I, I, I was raised by my mother, and I started playing basketball at maybe seven years old. No one in my family had ever played, no history, no family, no no nothing in, in the sport, and I fell in love with it, and my coaches always had an impact on me. They were father figures to me, so I grew up wanting to be a high school coach and history teacher. That's all I ever aspired to be. I went to uh, play Division two for a year and wasn't having a great experience, and I wanted to go to Indiana and work for Coach Knight as a student manager. I thought that would be my best avenue to get a good high school coaching position. So I quit playing Division II, went back to Indiana, and was on course to be a, a high school teacher. And one of the assistant coaches one day said, hey, Dusty, are you going to coach in college? And I looked at him. You know, I, did, I had no idea mm -hmm. what the path to even coach college basketball was. I said, I've never thought about it. And he said, well, these are what the guys before you have done and where they're working now. If I were you, I would strongly consider it. And I said, well, I considered, yeah, I'd love to do that. <laughs> so Great. That's, where do I sign? Yeah, yeah, where do I sign up for that? So at that point then it was like, okay, I'm going to start coaching AAU. I'm going to start driving the assistant coaches recruiting trips just to be more involved to see high school players. I remember I went to see David Lee with Pat Knight when I was maybe a sophomore or junior in college hmm. over in St. Louis. So just going and watching and trying to become better at, at evaluating younger prospects and seeing what Division One guys looked like. And, uh, you know, just kind of took it and ran from there and was fortunate to be with great people who helped me get positions and then continued to learn from a lot of great coaches. What aspect of coaching was attractive to you? Where did you think you could be most effective? Was it strategy? Was it X's and O's? Was it competition? What element was, was so attractive to you? Uh, tough question, but initially it was like, okay, video. I, if I can get in the business through the video side, I'm not going to get in as a former player. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get into the business as video, and then I'm going to figure out what to do after that. So I got in with video. That was my first entry with the video, the scouting, the game preparation, because that's what Coach Knight was known for. And Henry Bibb at USC, that's what he needed. And so I, I fortunately slid into position. And at that point, it was another assistant coach told me, hey, you need to bring as much value as you can if you want to progress in this business. So I went into Coach Bibby and said, hey, anything you need done, any position, any, any other jobs, I would love to have all of them. He said, I want you to start doing this, 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 this. I took camps. I did travel. I did just to learn everything about mm -hmm. college coaching. And, and luckily, he gave me a lot of responsibility. And and every step of the way, and then I went to Indiana, and, and Mike Davis was a great recruiter's assistant, so I tried to learn the recruiting side of it from him. So each step just tried to master a different field and, and just be valuable in all areas, maybe not necessarily great at any, but good at all of them. You mentioned being maybe a tougher route since you weren't a player or, or a big-name player. How difficult is that in this business? Because even if you look at the other guys on this staff, all of them played mm -hmm. at a high level in college. So was that – maybe a, a glass ceiling of sorts you had to break through to be a guy who wasn't a player but get on a high-profile staff? The higher level you go, and I think even in NBA more so, and, and I learned this at, at USC at, at that point, because at first you don't know how they're going to be receptive to you coaching them mm -hmm. and, and getting on them and telling them what to do. And someone told me that the higher level you go, the players don't care how you look, what you've done. They care about if you can help them get better and you care about them and you can help them in, in, in any way – 
then they're going to respect you and, and you'll be fine. So I kind of took that as, as a cue to get better at developing their talent. And selfishly, if you can help someone get better, then they're going to respect you. They're going to listen to you. So it just kind of grew from there. But no, I never felt like there was a ceiling because there were so many guys in my generation, You know, even all the Division three guys, the Brad mm-hmm. Stevens, you look at those guys and you're like, wow, none of these guys played high-level basketball. And now Lawrence Frank was another former manager that at that time was an NBA head coach. So when you look out and you see all these non-high-level players doing it, there's really no ceiling. When you went and started working for Coach Knight, which I guess is pretty audacious to be from Indiana and say, I'm I'm going and I'm going to go work for Coach Knight. Okay, sure you are. I mean, you go and, and you actually do that. What was that experience like? At first it was it was odd because I was pro- I was one of the only people there that weren't in some way tied to Coach Knight. It was his former players' sons. It was mm-hmm. former players' next-door neighbors. Where I, I knew Coach Knight's friend and the team doctor who got me in, but I didn't really know anyone. So it was a unique experience where it's kind of a, it's not a cult, but everyone is, is, you don't really communicate outside of the circle. Everything in the facility is kept there. No one talks about anything outside of the circle. So it was unique, but it was also, I grew up idolizing, worshiping Indiana basketball and and what it stood for. So to me, it was just a blessing to go there every day and try to learn and, and do whatever they needed. How did your time around Coach Knight in that program affect your philosophy on coaching and also just your perspective on basketball. When you grow up in Indiana, most of the coaches are a lot like Coach Knight personality-wise and and philosophically. So I felt like that's kind of who I was. And then when I went to USC, it was a whole different world. It was, you know, you have the NBA influence and the pro influence and the the entertainment side of it. And I was working for a a former pro coach and pro player, Henry Bibby, who had a, a philosophy that was a complete opposite under the spectrum of Coach Knight. So at that point, I learned, wow, there's so many different ways to do this. At first, I thought, man, this is it. Coach Knight's way, this is the only way you can do it. That's the only way it can be done. And then once you get away and you see some other things, like, like wow, some other things work. But without a doubt, it, Coach Knight, everything I, I am today and have, have been able to achieve is because of the base that I learned there working for him. So this podcast has a clean rating on iTunes. So I guess we have to, have to be careful about our Coach Knight stories. But I'm just curious. We know some of the famous things about him that became part of the, the culture. What were some things that you observed about Coach Knight that maybe people wouldn't expect? Just his generosity, him giving his time to maybe cancer patients or, mm. or young kids who've had uh, some traumatic event. Overall, his generosity and then just how great of a teacher he was. I mean, how how great of a teacher he is. He took difficult concepts and made them seem simple, and he was just always trying to help. I mean, even in passing, he might ask you a tough question. If you didn't know the answer, then he'd challenge you to find the answer. So just an educator and, and someone who's just a, a lot different than the perception you would see on TV. Does it bother you at all that the perception of him out there and the way people know him, especially people my age, as they think of him as the crazy guy who throws chairs and yells at people? Is that, does that bother you at all? Not at all. I think part of it is is he put that out there and he didn't mind it. For example, I know mm-hmm. a couple of press conferences he'd say, "Hey, watch this." <laughs> he might go off on a reporter, so it's not like wait till you was, see what's yeah. going to happen right now. <laughs> it's not like he was losing his cool. I mean, right. he may have wanted to send a message or prove a point, but uh, maybe not the way I would do things or certain people <laughs> would do things. But most of it was well calculated. After graduating from Indiana, you then worked at six schools over nine years. What centers you during that period when, when you're just constantly moving from place to place and, and changing jobs and changing environments? I think just the love and passion of the game and seeing new things and always and, and always trying to learn. Every assistant coach, every head coach, every GA, every player, especially the players, I've tried to learn. And, and each position was such a different experience because I had different responsibilities. You're coaching mm-hmm. different levels. 
So each one was such a learning experience. I've always enjoyed new things. I've always enjoyed traveling. So picking up and moving across the country was, was exciting as opposed to a burden. And, and especially when you're young, before you have kids, it's great. Because I, I remember uh, Coach Bibby offered me the job on a Wednesday or Thursday and said, when can you be back? And I said, well, I, I get back tomorrow. Probably need to go say goodbye to my grandmother. I'll be here in 30, 40 hours. <laughs> <laughs> so I got in my car. I drove straight to Phoenix, slept with an, at an aunt and uncle's house, wow. and then drove into L.A. the next morning. And, and actually, it was a Sunday, so I beat everyone there and, and ended up sleeping in the office until Monday morning when everyone came in. So I was so excited just to have an opportunity. Never dreamed that I'd be in that position to be getting paid to, to help mm-hmm. coach at a, at a major university. So this is all somewhat of a dream. It's it's surreal, but I think that's what keeps me centered is just this is how much I love teaching and coaching and, and how blessed I am to do this. In addition to having, I guess, a good airline miles card and good hotel points, what are other things that are key for coaches to have during that time in their careers? When you're really just on the grind trying to work your way up the ladder, if you were talking to someone who's interested in getting coaching, what would you tell them to focus on during that time? Focus on the players, just helping them and, and being as good as you can possibly be at your job. I, I know when I was I was young, my first couple of years, I was trying to network. And you realize when you're trying to network yourself, you're not near as effective as doing a great job and having other people network for you. If you, if you really leave an imprint on a player, then his coaches and his AU coaches and people he knows, then they'll notice you. And if you do the same thing, if you do a great job for the assistants you work under or the head coach, then they're going to promote you and they're going to network for you. So I would give that advice. Just try to do the best job you can with whatever you have and trust that, but also just do it for the right reasons. And, and if I was coaching Division Two right now, I'd be just as happy, content as I am right now just coaching basketball. So when you went to Louisiana Tech, you worked under Kerry Rupp. I did. And then he was let go. And you stayed on under Mike White. Now, that doesn't happen very often. Usually when the head coach goes, the whole staff goes. So why was that situation different? What were you able to do to build that quick bond with Coach White and be sort of a bridge from one staff to another? It was a unique situation where actually I was good friends with another assistant at Ole Miss. So Coach White and I had always known of each other, but I spoke with the other assistant on the staff regularly, and we were good friends. Um, when it went down, I had recruited a few of the players and, and had good relationships with them. And we'd had a great year, and then we'd had a terrible year. So there was a little bit of transition. And when Coach White got the job, I was involved in a couple other mid-major positions, and it was never like I was chasing the job. He he said, I'd like to talk to you. And I said, okay. And we kind of hit it off. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it just kind of fell into place. And, and fortunately for me, he was a young coach who didn't have a staff coming with him from a, a low major or, or another or Division two or whatever the case. So everything kind of fell into line. And I, and I just think we were, I guess, aligned is the right word philosophically and how he wanted to run his program. And I was excited about it. So it just kind of fell into place and, and it, it clicked right away. If we fast forward a few years, when that entire staff at Louisiana Tech picks up and moves to Florida, what were the biggest challenges of that transition? Trying to figure out a niche um, with recruiting. We mm-hmm. feel like you have to figure out, you have to find a niche. You have to find something you're going to sell that's different than everyone else. Because in today's climate, everyone has nice stuff uh, with the TV money. Everyone mm-hmm. has nice arenas. Everyone has practice facilities. Everyone's on TV. Um, not everyone has our weather and our, and our <laughs> academics. True. And so we have some, some unique things to sell. But at first, it was, it was us trying to figure out what is going to be our niche and, and kind of hammering at home. And, and so that was the biggest adjustment. I know as we sit here now, we, we talked last year for the story that aired on the, the Mike White TV show and, and asked you about what was happening here. And you said, well, it's, it's still so new. We're still kind of learning a lot of things. When you look back now and have some perspective on it, are there any things that surprised you in year one 
that you look back on now and maybe realize, oh, I could have done that differently because I, I have more perspective on it. It was all such a blur. I think everyone could have done a better job. That's my personality, first and foremost, is always analyze yourself. And, and you can always have done some things differently or, or some things better or just a little bit better that could improve the situation. But it's been such a blur, and, and I don't think we have a, a whole lot of regrets. We enjoyed the team last year. Uh, we had some rocky points in this season, but we learned from those, and, mm-hmm. and, and we feel like the players were they're better because of it. Sometimes smooth sailing is not the best for preparation down the line. So we, we hit some bumps in the road and, and feel like part of the reason our success this year is because of what we went through last year. So without a doubt, we're always looking to improve. But we feel like last year it ended up being a success. We finished strong. We went into the offseason with some momentum. Um, recruits got to see our teams play and see what type of, of product Coach White would put on the floor and what kind of style of play. So um, we feel like most of everything we wanted to achieve we did last year. We fell short of a couple internal goals, but you know those are things we're going to keep striving for and, and, and keep plugging. We want to be the best we can be. You were responsible for the scout for the Georgia game last week. So I'm curious what that process is like. If you can take us through how much work goes into scouting a team and, and how do you present it to your team. We rotate every third scout. For example, you'll watch five to seven full games for this year. Wow. Typically, they last four or five, and then you might go back and, and find a game early in the season from a team that plays like you. Or if they played recently on the road, you want to see how they play at home, so you might go back and get their last three home games just to check, the, see how mm-hmm. much different the energy level is and their intensity is at home. Uh, and then you'll go back and you'll watch the games from last year, and last year being our first year here, or we watch games from two years prior to see what that coach did against this what did he do against your baseline out of bounds defense what did he do against your press Mm -hmm. what did they how did they try to attack us did they want to go at our bigs did they try to put us in ball screens so and then you're trying to condense all of this information into you will have probably four different film sessions with the players and we try to make it as short as possible um, where we'll show their personnel at least twice key what they do well what they don't do well their stats their numbers how they can hurt you and then we'll show their sets how they play and then we'll show their defenses and then we'll show some extras maybe if they're a great offensive rebounding team we'll just have a two-minute film of them just pounding other teams on the offensive glass to get our guys in the right mindset so there's a lot goes into it and we just want to paint a, a, a picture for our players without making it too complicated where we want them to rely on their instincts mm-hmm. and what they already know more so than just taking away what the other team does well and this is something that that you live for i guess like a, a week or so going through the scouts so how difficult is it to pare down what you show them? Because the players can only take in so much. They have other responsibilities. You're all in on this. This is all you're thinking about. So is it frustrating sometimes having to try and cut down what you're showing them when you just want to give them everything that you know, but you have to, to limit it to, to an extent? We err on, on probably showing them a little bit too much. But no, I mean, we, we figure we have a routine and Coach White has a, has some parameters. So uh, he kind of gives us a lead and, and we go with it. So we don't show too much. Um, it might be too much at some points, but we try not to overload them with information. Like I said, we just try to keep it as simple as possible where we can give them keys that help them win. Um, what it is, though, you, we spend so much time watching their good plays because that's what you're going to show that we start mm-hmm. thinking they're even better than what they are. So Overselling if you ask the scout extent, coach, yeah. and, and internally you're <laughs> thinking, well, these guys are the they don't miss these I guys are the showtime the second you know, the best <laughs> thing since the showtime Lakers, and then right. you look at it and you're like, well, they've lost four or five games, they can't be that good. Right. So you know your your information gets skewed by watching so much film, but uh, we just want to be prepared, and and ninety percent of it we don't use, but a lot of it is just in case. So when the team wins a game that you scout which was the case with Georgia. Is that a source of pride? I mean, do you get a couple extra pats in the back? Is that a big deal when the team wins your scout? 
Uh, I don't think so. I think there's certain times I know internally you feel pride where if you put something in a scout and they really followed through on it and, and mm-hmm. it worked. And sometimes you put things in there and it doesn't work or it backfires or it has no relevance on the game. So some games more than others, but more often than not, it comes down to players making plays, guys making shots, uh, foul trouble, you know, certain things like mm-hmm. that, more so than the scout. The scout, you want to make up for a few points here and there, but at the end of the day, uh, it, it's more about the players, and we know that. This is not a profession for the faint of heart. Can you describe what an average week is like for an assistant coach at this level and just how time-intensive and all-consuming that is? Um, it's seven days a week. Uh, the days are long. We get in here in the mornings, and, and we're in here in, in the evenings, and even when we go home, it's – you have dinner with your family, and then you, your laptop's on your lap or your laptop's on your desk, and you're answering calls and texts as you do it. So it's a labor of love. We work a lot, just like any college coach does. It's time-consuming. You have 13 guys that, are, that you want to make them the best they can be, so you're in the gym with them extra before practice, after practice. Uh, you're texting them stuff at night. You're texting recruits, recruits' parents. So I'm not going to put a time on it because none of it is really working. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it, it's a it's a 24-7. You have to be available at all times. But it's, it's also very rewarding. What is the balance like with that and then your family as well? You, you have a pretty large family yourself. So how do you deal with that, especially in season? Fortunately for me, my family's a big part of it. They're at every game, and even Coach White's great about sometimes my son will ride his bike in and just watch practice. So just seeing him. Uh, for a few minutes extra a day and then in the evenings we hang out and we'll watch games together I know my oldest son he'll watch film with me sometimes he'll just pull up a chair and we'll sit and watch tape and I'll kind of talk mm-hmm. him through what I'm seeing so um, luckily for me I have three boys that love the game and my wife's very involved in the same so it makes my life a lot easier through all the travel when I do have work that they're involved in it and they understand you guys have been in Gainesville now for a little bit of time you've gotten settled as opposed to a year ago what have you and your family enjoyed about Gainesville what, what have you guys been able to, to take in that's unique the people uh, the schools uh, the relationships that our boys have had at school and, and their parents and it's just great people um, we moved after we rented a house for the first year and then we bought a house this year so we we wanted to make sure that we weren't too settled anywhere so we would have <laughs> moved in town <laughs> right right but just just the people the weather uh, the community how much everyone loves Florida and how important this place is to to the local community and it's just a really really neat place because you have everything that you need but yet it has a small town feel and just a normal community we were talking a little bit about our shared love of podcasts before we started here so I'm not sure if this falls in that category but when you do get some free time outside of basketball, what do you like to do? What, what keeps you sane when you can't look at one more piece of film? What, what keeps you going? I like to read podcast and then uh, I, I've always I was a runner I was a cross-country runner growing up so despite it being terrible on my knees I still like to go for a distance run trail running the great trails in Gainesville mm-hmm. so I really really enjoy that um, just being outside I love to be outside um, whether it's just sitting down enjoying the weather reading or just hanging out with my kids final thing for you I always like to ask players this so I, I wouldn't be fair if I didn't ask a coach this as well what's something unique about you that might surprise people to find out? I've always been told that people that don't know me assume that I'm very, very serious and stern, and and, and I probably go through a day where I'm laughing uh, out of 24 hours. If I sleep seven, I'm laughing probably 16 of the other 17 hours. So I don't take myself too serious. I like to have a good – I'm very focused, very intense, but also I like to laugh, have a good time, and be around people. The news never stops in the world of college sports, even for programs very much in their off-season. 
As we delved into a feast of wide-ranging tidbits from across the Gator Nation, we began by asking Scott Carter for his take on the sudden departure of offensive line coach Mike Summers and what it means for Florida football. I got the news basically was in the first half of the Florida-Georgia basketball game Saturday at the O'Connell Center. And, you know, whoa, Mike Summers is leaving. You know, there had been whispers that, Maybe there was going to be a change at the offensive line position, but at that point there was nothing concrete. And you're right, the coaching carousel, one thing I've learned about it is it's Mm -hmm. agent-driven. If a coach wants to leave, a veteran coach, agents, you know, they usually can find him a a new spot unless he's leaving on bad circumstances. In Mike Summers' case, that certainly is not uh, the case. Uh, Will Muschamp's final year, they added him to the staff, and the offensive line that year – if you remember, what they had, I think, four guys drafted uh, eventually. And, you know, then he kind of had to retool the last couple of years with Macklin. He was the only holdover, as you mentioned. And, again, fans are never going to be happy with the offensive line every game. That's just mm-hmm. not the not the way it works. Summers caught some of that heat, I think, unfairly at times. Because from all indications from what I've heard and just from talking to football people, I mean, the guy's a good coach. But, you know. Fans got the perception, well, maybe they needed to recruit better or whatever. You know, I don't know how that played out in the football offices, but I just know that he he got a job at Louisville. He's from Kentucky, obviously has a long history with Petrino. And now Jim McElwain has two openings, you know, with the departure of Jeff Collins and now Mike Summers. So I'm sure he's looking at all of his options there. You know, one thing we've learned about McElwain, he's not, I guess, knee-jerk reaction when it comes to making staff hires. Mm -hmm. We've talked about that in previous podcasts. And, you know, uh, he could hire somebody this week, maybe after National Signing Day. I just don't know. He's out on the road, kind of detached from uh, campus right now, trying to close strong on National Signing Day. But it's obviously an important position, a position that Florida has four players returning next season, four starters. The only guy they're losing, really, is David Sharp uh, to the NFL draft. They have some talent there, and uh, it'll be interesting to see who they bring in and what the dynamic there is. But, yeah, two openings right now, and he's, I'm sure, busy trying to fill those. I don't know if this is the silly season yet. Are we into the silly season yet, or is that <laughs> not until summer? Well, I think once the, the final snap of the championship right. game, I think it's silly season all the way until the next. And, of course, in college football, let's face it, it's silly season all year It's round. always silly season. It's, yeah. it's a silly sport. So. But that, that's kind of why we love it. Right, you know? right. There's and, always and, something to talk about. Yeah, there's always something to talk about. And having said that, I know you did a, a fun piece on FloridaGators.com about the way-too-early top 25s and where the prognosticators see Florida in that crystal ball. So what did you find during your uh, your, your research? Well, uh, i got to go back to what prompted the scientific study yes. first. My favorite thing to make fun of on the Internet is like the NFL mock drafts. Mm-hmm. I would love to know how many people put up NFL mock drafts on the Internet You know, each year going to the NFL draft. It's certainly uh, more words than in the Bible uh, (laughs) if you added them all up. But, you know, anyway, so now it's kind of like the new thing in the Internet is, or at least college football Internet coverage is the way too early. And then they'll revise the way too early top 25s after National Signing Day. Mm -hmm. But I get it. The Internet's 24-7. you got to feed the beast. So I was like, well, I'm going to have a little fun with this. So if I write one of these on FloridaGators.com, you know, I don't know how serious people might take it because, you know, I'll put the Gators number one. To... Gives a little more uh, legitimacy, right? Well, yeah. If it's on FloridaGators.com. Uh, so what I did here, <laughs> I was thinking, well, let's just go around. I went or surfed the internet. I found, like, 
11 of these way too early top 25. Only the most reputable ones, of course. Yeah, ESPN.com, Sports <laughs> Illustrated, Fox Sports, Sports on Earth, uh, SB Nation, Bleacher yes. Report. So these are all sites that most of their audience is going to be The journalistic aware. filter was very yeah. high. And I picked one. I figured, okay, I'll go to some this, this land of 10.com. They, uh, they covered a Big Ten, so they obviously got a little bit of handle on Florida mm-hmm. since Florida just beat up on Iowa. But they had the Gators ranked 31, and they actually go way too early top 40. So that was the lowest. But I ended up knocking them out and just using the mainstream ones, you know, from people who post these things and have to kind of do it from an objective uh, standpoint, as objective as you can in a right. way too early top 25. <laughs> and you know what I found, Adam, was, you know, the Gators are anywhere from 14, that's where the Sporting News had them, down to 22, which is where USA Today had them. The only one of these 10 that didn't have them ranked was CBSSports.com. That was done by Dennis Dodd, their national college football writer. He only did top 25. Florida was not there. So I did take an assumption in my poll here, my my very scientific. Yes. I had them 26. I said, obviously, if they're not they got to the be, the be, <laughs> be number 26. So anyway, I added up all the numbers. 197 divided by the 10 polls, an average rank of 19.7. So I think it's probably pretty safe to say next season when the poll, the real polls come out, you mm-hmm. can probably expect Florida to be somewhere in that 20 range. Uh, it was funny because they just ended the season in the AP Top 25 after beating Iowa in the Outback Bowl. They ended up at number 14. So if you look back at the course of last season and how it unfolded, they jumped 11 spots, opened at mm-hmm. 25, finished at 14th. Uh, so we'll see what happens next year. Um, it, it's fun just to kind of take a, a tongue-in-cheek approach right. and, you know, have a little fun with it because, you know, hopefully nobody will take it too seriously because <laughs> I don't take any of the way too early top 25s too seriously. But they do give you at least a good gauge of what people who maybe don't follow Florida football like we do or mm-hmm. the fans follow, you know, think of the Gators from the outside. So you can go check that out on FloridaGators.com. And speaking of top 25s preseason, oh, this is a little bit more legitimate, uh, Florida baseball, their yes. season is less than a month away. They're way up there again in, in the preseason polls, just as they were last year and pretty much every year under Kevin O'Sullivan. They've had a lot of expectations put on them. Yeah, it's kind of like the train keeps a rolling at them. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, they went to Omaha last year. A lot of people had them pegged to win out there. Obviously, they had a disappointing to and out, but again, Kevin O'Sullivan recruits as well as any coach here on campus. His program is always pretty much loaded in the last seven, eight years, producing a lot of draft picks. And, uh, you know, this year they'll go into the season with a roster that's a mix of uh, new and old. Uh, starting with his pitching staff, I mean, he's got Alex Fado at the top of the order. This is a guy who people are already talking about being a first-round draft pick in the 2017 MLB draft. Yeah, you got some new guys like Jonathan India and Deacon Lippett last year who came in as freshmen, contributed right away. They're sophomores now. And uh, you really like the combination they have at catcher again with Mike Revere and and uh, J.J. Schwartz. You know, a lot of those guys, maybe Schwartz can even play some first. D.H. to give Revere a time. But it's really a, a similar built program, some really just what I call high IQ baseball players. Mm-hmm. That's what he loves. I mean, they're they're grinders. They're 
even some people call them in the baseball circles dirt bags. Guys, <laughs> guys who love in the, the game. nicest possible sense. Yes, guys who love the game and they just you know they really like it and uh, know the ins and out. And that's the kind of team that slowly builds. What I will be interesting to see is how maybe he responds with the way he manages this year. Because I remember after last season he did say. You know, out in Omaha, you don't need 10 or 12 pitchers. You right. can get away with five or six. And how that unfolds over the course of a season, whether that means more two-way guys, uh, less changes, just late inning changes to get guys work. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what he does. But there's no doubt that, you know, going into the season, ranked number two in the nation, I think in the D1Baseball.com poll, which is really a, a very reputable one in college baseball circles, uh, bodes well. But, you know. They're going to be right there, Adam. Uh, it's just all a matter of if uh, things fall in the right place. But you can bet they're going to have a good, solid team. Bringing things back to things that are happening right here and now, the NFC Championship, the AFC Championship are both going to take place on Sunday. And there are Gators that are really involved in both those, not just Gators who are on a practice squad, but big impact players for two teams that are involved in those championship games. Yeah, let's start with the uh, the Packers uh, because I – as a Cowboys fan, I have to admit I was a little disappointed <laughs> on what happened there, but I also truly appreciated what Aaron Rodgers did in that game. I mean, that throw he made Unreal. Uh, to set up the winning field goal and the catch too. I mean, that was it was Everything a great play. It, yeah. Just think what it must have done for uh, you know, when former Gators Brian Poole and and Keanu Neal watched that tape. They're probably watching that game live. And now, guess what? We get to face that arm. <laughs> Your job is to few, go stop that from in happening. In a few days, yeah. you know. So, it, what a great moment for those two guys. Their first year in the NFL. We all know that Keanu was their first-round pick. You kind of expected him to be an impact player just because he improved so much here at Florida that final season in mm-hmm. 2015. He's had an NFL body since the day he got here, and he finally caught up in the football uh, football part of it having a great rookie season but Brian Poole I mean he was the big hit on Twitter for a while there after he he made Russell Wilson yeah Yeah. kind of his playoff moment and Brian's uh, I think surpassed most expectations under Dan Quinn but that just goes to show you sometimes how you know a guy who was in college coaching Dan Quinn obviously helped recruit both of those guys he knew about them he knew their character knew their ability Sure. He brings Poole in to give him a chance because probably the kind of guy Poole was, and Poole's taken that and ran with it. And now here they are. They're going to start in the secondary for the Falcons on uh, this weekend when Green Bay comes to town. So that's going to be fun to watch. And then on the flip side, you got Pittsburgh still alive, and a couple of former Gators have been stalwarts up front for several years now, been protecting Bryn Roethlisberger for these last few years, and, and Marquise Pouncey and Marcus Gilbert. Trying to uh, beat the Patriots and help uh, Pittsburgh get back to another Super Bowl while Roethlisberger is still around. And, uh, you know, a big moment for them. And, you know, in these kind of games we, in the past, we've we've talked about a lot of the Patriot connections over the years with Florida. That's kind of slacked off, but certainly the Pittsburgh connection with Pouncey and the Marcus is one that we've talked about for a while. And I'm looking forward to both of those games. I mean, I was kind of hoping to see an Atlanta-Dallas game that would bring back some memories of my youth but <laughs> a lot longer than uh, you were been around Adam but either way <laughs> I don't remember these games you're talking yeah, about you've yeah you've you've seen what Aaron Rodgers do you've seen Tom Brady if it ends up being those two it's going to be good but it's also be fun to see the Steelers and, and Falcons and some Gator chances to get in the Super Bowl so the all Gators Super Bowl if, if you want the Gators to get to the Super Bowl 
you're looking for Atlanta and Pittsburgh to yep. meet in Houston. Otherwise, the Gators get shut out if neither one of those two teams makes it there. Yeah, I mean, what happened last weekend, you had Kansas City get beat by Steelers, so that knocked some Gators out. And, mm-hmm. and the Patriots, as just thinking off the top of my head here, I don't know of any any Gators on there. And then, of course, uh, Green Bay. Uh, one prominent former Gator they have, Ron Zook, on special teams. You know, it's funny because Ron's He's been there for a while now. Yeah, I'd have to go back. Seemed like for Gosh, at least three or four years. Yeah, but, he's been there a while. You know, uh, Ron Zook was always a, a great special teams coach, even at Florida, and he also coached in Pittsburgh. You know, back in the day, so he's got history uh, with a couple of these teams alive. But uh, so that's one former Gator that might be back in the Super Bowl if uh, Green Bay pulls it out. Also this weekend, gymnastics had their home opener, also their first SEC meet. Looked really, really impressive against Kentucky. And despite the fact that they lost a lot of really talented gymnasts from a year ago, they appear to be in great shape moving forward. The first thing that I thought of, you know, when I walked in there, it's the first gymnastics meet I've been to since 2011 that I didn't either see, you know, Keecher Hunter or Bridget Sloan Mm -hmm. uh, out there performing for the Gators. Obviously, Hunter's last year was 2015, and then, Bridget Sloan, uh, she ended her time at Florida last spring. And, you know, this team keeps finding ways to refuel themselves. And that's really comes back to recruiting, as we all know. That's the lifeblood of college athletics. And it looks to me, just from what we saw Friday against Kentucky in the home opener, uh, this team has some talent. You know, some real new- newcomers like Rachel Slocum, a transfer from uh, Eastern Michigan, one on vault. They got some really good freshmen, but they also have – they do have some experience in Alex McMurtry, Alicia Boren, and Kennedy Baker. I mean, that's a pretty solid trio. Then we got to see some of the, the freshmen. Uh, Megan Chant was out there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so th- they've got some talent. Anytime you lose an athlete like Bridget Sloan, who, you know, is arguably the – you know, you can make a case out of the – she's as accomplished as any athlete in any Absolutely. sport that the Gators have ever had. And anytime you lose that, your program loses something, you know, mm-hmm. not just from a standpoint of talent, but people love to come to watch her. And now this team has to kind of find those stars. And one star the first night was obviously the Odome, the Exact Tech Arena. It was the first gymnastics meet that the program had held there since it's been renovated. I think they had a crowd of almost 8,000. It was a lively, huge. yeah, it was a lively crowd. And if you were there, I mean, you know, the gymnastics crowd is kind of different than probably any other crowd that comes to sporting events at UF. Mm-hmm. Always a lot of kids. I mean, I've got two young daughters, and believe me, they would rather go out with dad to gymnastics and go into the football locker room and meet every <laughs> player on the team. Wouldn't mean anything to them. <laughs> would not mean anything to them, and, and they love it. And, you know, that's it's a cool atmosphere over there, and they, they've got a great team to come see. And, and I really uh, expect that what we saw on Friday night in the home opener, I think they should be in the conversation late in the year, you know talking about going back to the Super 6, as long as everyone stays healthy. Yeah, so I was walking over here to, to talk to you today. I walked right by the, the practice facility for gymnastics and saw the championships, 2013, 2014, 2015, and I was reminded of, of last year and the pressure that was on that team with Bridget Sloan as a senior to go 4 for 4 and it reminded me in a way of Tebow's last year and how much immense pressure there was on football to go out and win another national championship and then sort of where you go from there, right? Because after that that exhale and it doesn't happen, then you move on, you lose a, a seminal figure in your program's history. 
but then you you find rebirth, you renew, so to speak. So I think that's what's interesting about the challenge for for Jenny Rowland here in her second year is it's almost like you have a new team to try and build when you don't have that key figure that everybody sort of looks up to. Totally agree, Adam. That's probably a pretty good analogy there with Tebow because, you know, Bridget Sloan was without question the most dynamic performer they've had in the program's history. Uh, Keecher Hunter was right there with her. It was almost like one and one A. Mm-hmm. And she changed the program. I mean, gymnastics is a sport that before Hunter and Sloan teamed together, it had four national champions in its 30-some years. And yet, here they are. They win three in a row, and uh, it changed the culture of the sport and uh, made Florida a real player. And, you know, this is a challenge uh, as Jenny Rowland. It's really a challenge for her to, you know, when you take over a program and you have someone like Bridget Sloan and on your roster your first season, that's a pretty good way to land at a new job. It's a good place to start. Yeah, and I think, you know, with Bridget now gone and with some newcomers, uh, it's time for her to kind of put her stamp on the program mm-hmm. uh, long term, and she's got her own plan, and uh, we'll see how that shakes out. But it does feel like a new era without Bridget around. And that's going to do it for today's show. As always, we encourage you to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Also, make sure to follow us on Twitter and like our new Facebook page to get all the latest updates on the official podcast of the Gators. So until next time, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Exact Tech Arena.